Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. As you can tell, my voice is a little raspy because I've been sick. But anyways, on with the show. So I'm going to do the intros. I'm Amy Knight from Nashville. And with me, we have Chris Ferdinandi. Hey, hey, it's the Vanilla JavaScript guy. And Joe Eames. Hey, hey, it's the Strawberry <laughs> Angular guy. Chris has such a better introduction than me. Nailed it. I have introduction envy. And we have AJ O'Neill. It's the Yo 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 guy, also known as Solder JS in the modern times, <laughs> coming at you live from a hot air rework station near you. Nice. And Frosty. It's the fake British accent guy. Hello. Better known as Aaron Prost. And our guest today, we have him back. He was here a couple weeks ago, and the conversation was so good, we wanted to continue James Short. Hey, hey, I don't have anything to hey, hey about. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens, and take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe, to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com byte as in eight bits as a special offer for listeners of this show if you take a job through triple byte they'll offer you a one thousand dollar signing bonus as we were talking a few minutes ago so the last episode we left off talking about evolutionary design and so chuck who is not feeling super well today wanted you to come back on and continue on with this so i guess my first question is can you define that Evolutionary design used to be a really big deal. So it comes from agile development. It comes from extreme programming. And it, when extreme programming was big, which was in the early 2000s, 2000 to 2005, 2000, 2008 or so, one of the core ideas was evolutionary design. And extreme programming is also where continuous integration came from and refactoring got popular and where test-driven development came from. And these other ideas, continuous integration, continuous delivery, test-driven development, they all survived when XP sort of got taken over by Scrum. But evolutionary design, it went away. But I think it's actually one of the most key ideas in agile engineering. And uh, that's why I was hoping we could talk about it some more. So thanks for having me on. And what it is, is it's in a nutshell, it's rather than designing your code in advance, it's starting with something small, making it work and then making the code bigger and bigger and more complex over time. And the trick, of course, is how you do that. But um, the very simple bit is you don't design your code in advance. You design it as you go. Let it grow. Let it I mean, grow, yeah. This seems like something we all strive to do anyways, no? Like be iterative? Try to, so, ship, try to ship in small increments the, the smallest possible thing that works, see how it goes, and then build on that? So... I'm listening to James's explanation, definition, if you will, of evolutionary design. And uh, I'm having a flashback. I remember when I was in QA and there's like tons of definitions of types of testing to do. And then you have like this lazy way 
where you just click for fun and it's pointless. Like you just are kind of aimlessly clicking, right? But then some genius, evil genius gave that a definition. And now that became like the number one thing your way that you're supposed to test It's called exploratory testing. And so now I'm hearing you go, Hey, on design, don't design just code. And I'm like, okay, I like that better. I mean, I, a lot of people are going to like that, but how does it not get out of control? How do you not screw your code base up without putting like intentional thought into it? Like, I don't know if I'm making sense to anyone but myself, but how, do, how does it not get unmanageable? I think that's a really good question. And that's why I wanted to talk about evolutionary design because evolutionary design isn't just letting your code grow. That would be ad hoc design. And I think now that Agile has become so popular and this idea of using sprints and working in two-week you know, two cycles or one-week cycles has become so popular, you can't do the big upfront design that people used to do in the 90s, which was design everything and then code everything. Now you've got to do it in small sprints, but how do you do that? And evolutionary design is the way you do it. There's three pieces to this. It is a disciplined technique for designing software. The three pieces are simple design, which is that we build the simplest thing that can possibly work for the problems we're solving today. We do not anticipate the future. There's incremental design, which is that as new requirements come in, we modify our design to be perfectly designed for what the requirements are today. So we we incrementally evolve the design towards the new requirements. And then the third thing is what I call continuous design. We are designing all the time. Uh, We're not doing it once at the beginning of the sprint and then implementing that design, we're doing it every day, every hour, we're thinking about design and we're evolving our design. So simple design, do the smallest thing that can work, incremental design, grow it as new, new requirements come in and continuous design, do it all the time. That's evolutionary design. I just want to know, does this fight, is there like a natural fight against evolutionary design and intelligent design? <laughs> I just want to know is this like are there any it. textbooks to, <laughs> is there a textbook fight I guess alright I, I want to jump in here with a few things I went to uh, took a couple I, I'm not a university college trained developer but I did take a few classes and one of the classes I took over at the community college was in the mid late 90s object oriented analysis and design so my first question is Obviously, where do my CRC cards go, right? I need to know where I put my CRC cards. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny you mention that because CRC cards, I believe, were created by Ward Cunningham. And Ward Mm -hmm. Cunningham was one of the inventors of extreme programming, and uh, which includes evolutionary design. A lot of the ideas in evolutionary design come from Ward Cunningham. CRC cards were a technique that he invented to simplify the big upfront design that everything that everybody does. So where do the CRC card fits in? Well, they can fit right in there. Although, because this is the way people are, that your evolution, your, your university course might have taken the really simple idea of CRC cards, which for everybody who's listening has not heard of them, which is, I'm guessing everybody (laughs) younger than us. Um, Right. Class responsibility collaborator. You write on the top the name of the class. You write on one side the responsibilities of the class, and then you write on the other side the collaborators, the the other classes that it interacts with. But yeah, that was actually early idea that was part of what led to evolutionary design is that we want to simplify these massive wall charts that people were making with upfront design, which is sort of the intelligent design world, right? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you were joking, but there actually was a big conflict between evolutionary design and big upfront design. Big upfront, big upfront design. Yeah. So is this kind of like uh, a little bit of the let's not be so waterfall? I mean, I remember these phases that I went through doing UML diagrams and interaction. Di- one of my favorites, the interaction diagram. But so obviously, this is like we're moving away from waterfall. Waterfall is all these problems. And this is one of those kind of aspects of as we move away from waterfall, we're letting our code, we're incrementally growing our code, you know, those three aspects that you uh, laid out. Is that a fair assessment that this is, again, one of these waterfalls, not the right way to do these things. This is one of the techniques that is used instead of waterfall development. It's something that you use because you can't use waterfall development. So XP, of course, was sort of the big popular first agile method. It's it's fallen by the wayside, I think, because it's a lot harder than Scrum and it's a lot more involved than Scrum. But because it was sort of the first big agile method, it tried to solve all these problems, all these criticisms people had of agile. And one of the criticisms of agile was, hey, if you're working in two-week cycles, how do you possibly create software that works, doesn't turn into a giant mess of technical debt because you're not thinking about your design in advance? And so XP solution to that, I mean, XP has all these technical practices in it to enable you to answer that, all these criticisms of how could Agile possibly work. And I think that for a lot of people, those technical practices have been forgotten and evolutionary design is, is one of them. Evolutionary design is how can you possibly create software in two-week cycles or one-week cycle without creating a mess? Right. Uh, if you're not doing that, and a lot of people aren't, yeah, you end up with a lot of technical debt. You end up with code that has to be rewritten after five years, seven years. And um, that's a problem. So my question, I guess I kind of have two now based on <clears throat> what you just said a minute ago. I think the first question was, like, how much of this becoming more popular is a result of us, I guess, as an industry moving further and further away of having things be on-premise and just having services in the cloud? And then the other question well, I'm going to hold off on the other question and ask it after this. So the first question was, how does this relate to having things be in in the cloud rather than Yeah, like do you think it's becoming more popular because like whereas before if we had to like do stuff on premise, a lot of times you wouldn't deploy software out to customers as frequently. I would say that agile engineering and agile in general is probably more popular because of the cloud. Yeah, because it enables the stuff that we were talking about in 1999 in a way that's much more natural. In the early days of XP, people did continuous integration by burning a new CD every two weeks. Yeah, yeah, and we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, now we can do continuous delivery, which is awesome. We can deliver multiple times per day. And that's that's really cool. And people seeing people people seeing that happen, like Flickr was one of the early examples of uh, continuous delivery. Uh, Flickr, the photo sharing website. I think that's part of what made Agile successful was people seeing that and wanting to to reproduce it. But I think what happens is they they see, they say, how do you do that? And they say, somebody says Agile, and then they copy Scrum or something like that, but don't bring in the engineering practices. And they don't do the evolutionary design and other things that are required to really make that successful. Yeah. And so, I mean, you kind of, I think, answered my other question in what you just said too, because initially you said you know, most people do like two-week sprints and ship after that, but I feel like to enable you to be even more evolutionary or I'm going to say iterative, you know, you'd want to ship multiple times a day. Yeah, you certainly could. Um, 
the idea in Agile at this level of, of proficiency is that we want to ship as often as the market will accept the software. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and for a cloud-based, web-based type of thing, that can be multiple times per day. For you know something that's shipped on a CD, I worked for a company that did uh, mass spectrometers. So their mass spectrometers are these big pieces of equipment that vaporize a chemical sample and tell you which atoms make up that sample. Uh, they use a laser and ma- strong magnets and so forth. And at this company, they were sh- the mass spectrometers are used by the drug uh, drug industry pharmaceutical industry, they're regulated by the FDA. So the software we were writing, we could not ship it more than about once a year because every time we shipped new software, it had to get recertified by the FDA. So for that environment, we wouldn't want to ship more than once a year, but it actually would still be appropriate to use evolutionary design. It's even appropriate to use continuous integration, continuous, continuous deployment, if not continuous delivery, to make sure that the software is continuing to work and to keep the code in good order, keep it working well, even in the face of changing requirements, changing understanding what our, what our people, what our customers wanted. I, I got the question. So I like what I hear. I like what I hear, but I need more from you because it sounds great. It sounds like what I recommend on Teams, although I've never used these terms, which is why I like it because it's putting terminology on what I'm liking. But here's my question. Continuous design and incremental design. They sound like the same thing. And I feel like by encouraging those two things, you're potentially opening yourself up to a whiplash at the speed. Like every time the JavaScript community posts a new blog post, we now got to go continuously redesign. So my, my question is, how does continuous design not waste your company's money? And What's the deeper difference between incremental design and continuous design? Just give me some more definition. I'm liking what I'm hearing. I just need some more. Sure, sure. So what we see in the JavaScript community is not continuous design. What we have is, is fads. Insanity. Right? <laughs> yeah. We have continuous yeah. rewrites, continuous intervention. I would say resume-driven development. You know, everybody wants to make their own thing so that they can- RDD. Yeah, yeah. So they can say, hey, I made this. Look at my GitHub. Look how awesome I am. And it's a whole nother topic, but I actually think that's really cool. Like the JavaScript community is so vibrant. We've got so many neat ideas. We wouldn't have React if we didn't also have Angular and and XJS and jQuery. I would be okay with that. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Thank you, Chris, for saying it so that I didn't need to. I'll be the asshole in this episode. That's but, but, <laughs> but the DA, the DA. The uh, continuous design is not that. Continuous design is not constantly inventing new things. In fact, it's exactly the opposite, or evolutionary design is exactly the opposite. So let me go into a little more detail on each of these things. We've got simple design, incremental design, continuous design, right? Simple design is pretty straightforward. It's easy to understand, but it's hard to do. It's do code that only solves the problem that you have in front of you today. Nothing else. Don't anticipate the future. No, no premature optimizations. No, no, like abstraction for the future. You don't abstract until yeah. so you need an abstracted type thing. No hashtags for private variables and methods that you don't need. That's right. Yeah, nothing. If you don't need it today, if it's not part of what you are delivering this sprint or you know for this feature, whatever your cycle is, don't do it. The famous phrase is, "You aren't going to need it." Yagni, don't do it if you don't need it. Of course. If you're doing that, 
what do you do when new requirements come in? Well, that's where incremental design comes in. Let's go back to simple design. What's the wisdom in this? Like, I see the wisdom. Can you peel back some of the layers of the why is that so smart to say, don't prematurely optimize. Don't get ready for tomorrow. Even though you know what's happening tomorrow, don't get ready for it. Like, just, just do what you need today. What's the wisdom there? Yeah, well, there's, I can tell a story or I can, I can ask you a question, but let me, let me put it this way. Have you ever gotten involved with some code where they made a guess about what was going to happen and they got it wrong? I've never had that happen. Never, ever. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, in the last five <laughs> minutes, it hasn't happened in the last five minutes. But yeah, yeah but- obviously I've had it happen. Yeah. Okay. And then you've also had code where they didn't anticipate what you needed and they didn't put anything in and it didn't matter if it was right or wrong, right? It just didn't exist. True. Which of those would you rather work with? Obviously the second one. Yeah. Because it is such a pain in the ass to rip out code that's wrong because it's got its tendrils through the entire code base, right? True. Whereas if the code just doesn't exist, that's not a problem, especially if the code is well-designed. You just go find the piece that you need to change. You change it and you're done. And then maybe you spend some time writing the new thing, but hooking it in is easy. Ripping out code that's wrong is way harder. So simple design is about not making guesses about what might happen because you're going to get it wrong sometimes. And it's way more expensive to rip out code that's wrong than to write code that didn't exist. Is, a, is that a book definition or is that like your definition? Uh, this is not stuff that's clearly defined. It's, it's defined in my book that way. <laughs> you're the so, guest, so that matters. So, okay. So James, thinking a little bit about kind of adding code that doesn't exist or making changes when you need to, um, like what, what sort of role does, or does that, does that change the way you design your product? So I'm, I'm just thinking for a second about some of the like JavaScript plugins I've written where I try and create, knowing that I'm not going to think of every use case someone might have, I try and write hooks where people can extend it to meet their needs, either in the form of being able to pass in user options or kind of custom events that get emitted that they can tie into. Does that fit into this design philosophy or is that kind of in your mind something different? I think that's a really good point. That's one of the areas where continuous or where evolutionary design breaks down. Uh, Evolutionary design isn't suitable for published APIs. Okay. Because when you publish an API, changes to the API API are really expensive to your customers, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, you don't want to be doing new Semver major stuff all the time. So you could evolve underneath a published API as your interface, and you kind of need okay. to define that up front uh, or define it in a way that allows you to grow it but not change it. Otherwise, you end up with, like I'll, I'll call it the WordPress problem, where they care really deeply about backwards compatibility. And so you end up with a whole lot of like legacy cruft that becomes really hard to shake. And they're going through a process now where they're getting rid of a lot of that stuff, and it's causing huge rifts in the community as a result. Yeah, exactly. I, there are techniques. In fact, I'm, I'm looking at putting out some open source libraries where I'm going to try this out. You can make software forward and backwards compatibility by publishing different API versions and then maintaining those indefinitely. So you'd have a V1 that people would import and a V2 that they could upgrade to if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, I've not actually tried this yet, but that would be one way of working around it. But in general, I would say evolutionary design is only for the internals of a product. It's mm-hmm. not for the external API. And so it's probably better suited to you know, user-facing products than pro- programmer-facing products. Okay, that makes sense. So I feel like I have written really, really terrible code and also really, really excellent code following kind of the, like the same, maybe 
I don't know, evolutionary design type of principle of like adding things when it's needed. But there's, there's definitely a difference, like writing a library. Like it's, I, I feel like it's easy to write a library that has a good API and clean code, even if it's, it's kind of like experimental, but writing, writing more like a product rather than a library, it seems like the quickest path to get there is, is code that I'm ashamed of. Do you, do you have this kind of, any of you have this kind of dichotomy where like you're proud of your libraries and ashamed of your products? Yeah, I'm ashamed of your products, AJ, like for sure. <laughs> well, I, by association, but, but what, what I mean is I feel like this evolutionary, to me, I feel like I followed that and I, I don't always because I like to, you know, think ahead. But whenever I think ahead, man, it just ends up so much worse, so mm-hmm. much worse. I kind of think about it as like the crappy first pancake, like the first version of whatever I build is always terrible, but I need to put it out there and start interacting with it to like make the better second version. I, uh, of all the projects I've ever worked on, no matter how much planning we put in up front, wherever we thought we were going before we started, about one step into the race, we realize we're going the wrong direction and we need to pivot and we have to change. You know what I'm saying? And so that's why I like this idea of don't prematurely optimize, don't write stuff for things that don't exist because so many times, I mean, almost all the time, almost every time you end up in a completely different spot than you thought you were going when you started the race. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it rings really true based on my experience of the business pivots so fast that if you're premature optimizing for today's story, today's story might not exist tomorrow, you know? And so I like, I like this minimalist approach and, and I've preached it for a long time. Um, I certainly like having these uh, definitions to, to add on to it though. This has been great. Let's talk about how you actually do it because it's easy to say, well, just keep the design really simple. Right. But then as it grows, how do you do that without making a mess? And that's, that's the challenge. I think what you were talking about, Frosty, is, is exactly right. That's why evolutionary design was created, was because if we're allowing the design to change all the time, what are we going to do about that? And the answer in the 90s was change control boards, which I don't know if any of you ever got involved with a change control board. That was a literal group of people that was part of the organization whose job was to say no in the most politically correct way possible. Change control was the change no board, right? We, we, we say no to any changes you want. And that's how they managed this problem is we're going to define the requirements a year or two in advance. We're going to build exactly what we said, even if it wasn't right. And if you want any changes, too bad, because we don't know how to modify our design. So part of it is the simple design. Part of it is it, is it you know, only building what you need today. But when something comes along, you need to evolve your code to meet that new requirement. That's the incremental design part. Right. So incremental design, that is modifying your code to meet the new features but it's not just adding new things to your existing design. It's actually modifying your design to best fit what's going to come along. And that's about all the good design principles about keep it simple, limit your coupling, have highly cohesive code that's similar, should stay together. Uh, duplication of concepts shouldn't be allowed. A duplication of code is actually better than duplication of concepts. And... Often, when you see a new feature, sometimes what you're going to do is you're going to refactor your code to best allow this new feature to come in rather than just adding the new feature and then refactoring. Okay. So simple design 
it's kind of like bringing sanity into what should I add to this current code that I'm writing, right? Mm-hmm. Incremental design is about how do I integrate when I'm modifying existing code and adding on to that, right? Three things you need to have skill in. So, so I was just I was interpreting it as this is how you refactor and 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 increment on top of stuff that exists. But what are those three things? Yeah, you need to have skill in three things. Uh, first is reflective design. Uh, that's my own term. I made it up, but it's in contrast to upfront design. Upfront design is you imagine the future state of the world and you can create a design using UML or sketches on a whiteboard that says this is how we're going to solve this problem. That's upfront design or predictive design. Uh, reflective design is looking at the code and saying, I understand the code of this, the design of this system, and this is what it is. And here's how I can change it to better fit in this new feature I want to add. So instead of predicting the future, we're going to say, how do I change what I have today for what I need today? So that's skill one, reflective design. Skill two is refactoring. That's making, and people often use the word refactoring to mean rewrite, but that's not what refactoring is. Refactoring is making small two or three minute changes that keep your code working exactly the way it was before, but with better design. Very small pieces. Uh, Martin Fowler recently came out with a new edition of his book, Refactoring, which is all written in JavaScript. Highly recommended. And so that's first two skills, reflective design, uh, refactoring. And then the third skill that you probably need is test-driven development because refactoring is hard to do safely unless you have a lot of experience and less uh, without tests. So you want to have a good body of tests to allow you to refactor safely. I was with you till you said TDD, and then I pulled the ejection seat. I ejected. You're out. <laughs> That's it. I'm Done. out. Peace. <laughs> I'm floating to the ground in a parachute right now. Yeah, mic drop. Um, all right. So I what, why, I, why are you out at TDD? Oh, that's a different episode. But we're friends still. Me and you are still friends, James. I'm glad to hear that. I'd, I'd be sad. I'm not judging you. I don't want to be judged either though, on, the, on the hate for TDD. Uh, I, I might be. I might be judging you. I have to be honest. Well, I'm judging you right now. This is the judgment-free zone. Uh, all right, I'll stop judging you. Yeah. I mean, remember all the pre re, before we started recording all that conversation? Judgment-free. All of that. So, so you don't have to do TDD. Uh, what you Boom. need to have is the ability to refactor safely, and the and test-driven development is the easiest, most effective way I know of doing that. But if you've got a good body of tests or some, or if you have machine provable refactorings, which do exist uh, in uh, tools like JetBrains, WebStorm, or uh, IntelliJ or something like that, or also in VS Code, I think they have some provable refactorings, uh, you can do that. But a lot of the interesting refactorings you're going to want to do aren't going to be provable refactorings. So you need tests around your code to prove that you didn't break anything. Yeah. Easiest way to do that is TDD. All right. I think I get simple design. I think I get incremental design and I'm glad you defined those three skills. So continuous design is the one where I see my entire team sitting down because there's been a new blog post about a new pattern that we all need to adopt. And it causes a ton of stagnation and refactoring. So give us a better definition, a deeper definition on continuous design, because that's the one where it seems to me like our code and our projects go to die. So explain that one. Yeah, that's a, I, I think that is where, I think design is where code goes to die. And that's because people aren't using continuous design. So when you, when you hear me say continuous design, you're probably thinking, oh, we're constantly sitting down and redesigning our entire system, right? Because that's what people think of when they give a design. They think of it as a phase that they do separately from everything else. Continuous design 
is saying that everything we do includes design work. This isn't something where we sit down, we redesign the entire system from scratch. If we're working on a method, we're looking at it and saying, uh, it helps if you're doing pair programming or mob programming because you get more, more brains in the picture, but you don't have to be doing it that way. When you look at a method that you're working on, you're looking at it and saying, how can I improve the design of this code? And when you see a variable name that you look at and it's like, uh, I don't think it means that. I think it means this, or I don't understand what this means. You rename it. That's a design activity. That's continuous design. And when you see that your method is getting a little bit long, maybe it's 20 lines of code, it's got a couple levels of nesting, you say, eh, this is complicated. I'm having trouble understanding it. I have to read through this code to understand it rather than just sort of speaking to me naturally. So then you would do an extract method. That's continuous design. What I find is that if you're doing continuous design and incremental design and simple design, that you're constantly evolving the design of your code on multiple levels. At, at multiple timescales. At the method level, you're doing, you're coming up with new breakthroughs, new ideas every couple of hours. You know, you're working in some methods. Oh, I see a much better way of doing this. You clean it up, boom, you're done. Takes a couple of minutes, right? Maybe five minutes. Every so often you're like, you look at the code and you say, well, these modules, these classes, these libraries I've written that I'm not publishing just for internal use, they actually no longer really fit the way I think about this code and the way my, part, my team members think about this code. And you do a cross-class refactoring. You'll extract a new class or a new module. You'll take a bunch of functions that were in different parts of the system, put them together in a new class. It's really common when you're drawing up your code. You know, don't repeat yourself. You find that you've actually accidentally created an age concept. Maybe your, your software handles birthdays in some way. And you realize after several months that, oh, actually, the code over here that looks up the age on the web page and the code that looks up the age over here on the, on the admin screen and the code that looks up the age over here when we're talking to the database... That's all dealing with the same concept. So let's take that age concept, put it in a class, call it age. It's going to have an int in it. That's it. But it will put all the methods related to age in that one's class. That happens every couple of weeks when you're doing continuous design, maybe week, every two weeks, depending on the size of the team, of course. And then there's also an architectural timescale of, hey, we've realized that there's just a massively better way of approaching this problem. And that's probably what you're thinking about, Frosty, when you say design, right? You're thinking about these massive overhauls. I uh, was thinking like, I'm glad you defined it because I was more interpreting it as patterns and practices. But, and I was like, dude, whiplash on constantly redefining our patterns and practices. But you're not talking about patterns and practices. You're talking about more of a micro level design rather than a macro level patterns and practices type thing. So the patterns and practices are architectural scale. So it's, it does, you do get continuous design at the architectural level too, but it's expensive. And so the yeah. real goal in evolutionary design is to minimize, if, if I define architecture as the stuff that's hard to change, it's the repeated patterns and practices, just like you're saying. Yeah. Well, it's the responsibility of the good agile architect to minimize the stuff that's hard to change. So ironically, the agile architect's job is to make sure that he doesn't have a job. They should be doing as little, he or she should be doing as little as possible, defining as few things that have to repeat, be repeated throughout the code base as possible. That said, you're still going to have that. The choice to use JavaScript is a repeated pattern, right? That's architecture. Uh, the choice of language is architecture. The choice of Socket.io can be architecture. Choice of React is architecture. Anytime you choose a framework, that's architecture because it's hard to change, right? So you want to minimize it, but you can't minimize it entirely. Over time, you will discover that some of those patterns and practices that you're following don't work very well. And for me, that timescale is about four to six months. 
where I discover that what I'm there's a big piece that I'm using that doesn't work well. And then, yeah, those have to be refactored and improved as well. So James, what are your thoughts on frameworks in this light? Ooh, good question. Yeah, yeah. Frameworks are tough because they let you get started really easy and they can make it really hard to grow your software depending on how well designed the framework is. Sadly, in the JavaScript world and really in the entire programming industry, frameworks are often, the open source frameworks are built by people with a lot of time, which are usually the less senior programmers. Uh, They're the ones with five to nine years of experience who are maybe building their very first framework. And so when they do that, they're going to get something totally wrong. And you saw this with Angular 1. There were some bad ideas in Angular 1, and they fixed them when they built Angular 2, but they kind of screwed up their ecosystem when they did it. So frameworks are really tricky. I, If given the choice, and I don't always have a choice, given the choice, I will take a collection of libraries and glue them together myself rather than using a framework because then I can change my own glue rather than being stuck in the world that the framework provides. Must bite tongue. <laughs> Must bite tongue. Yeah, that's so a different that's... episode. I won't say anything. I think that's still uh, an interesting thing in digging into a little bit because even in the framework world, even in a, even in a highly opinionated world, right? Like, yes, the framework, and oftentimes I'm, I'm going to talk specifically about JavaScript frameworks here. Like, so much of it can be constrained, but most, a lot of that is constrained on the areas where the DOM meets the interactivity, right? And of course, they do have a fair amount of state management stuff going on. But when it comes right down to it, when you move past just your CRUD app into some really complex stuff with really complex business logic that's living, you know, potentially on the client or whether it might be living on the server, there's still a fair amount of, I don't, there's no structure being provided at all here. And I've got to put this structure in and I've got to grow it. Or uh, as we've seen recently, like with the whole Redux thing, people putting patterns and adapters on top of facades on top of Redux and and things like that. So I don't know if there's a question here. I don't know if you're much into this, uh, James, yourself, but I think it's interesting to ask, is this new wave of trying to simplify the Redux API across, certainly it's happening a lot in Angular land. Is that a form of evolutionary design or is that really a reaction to something different versus my software needs to evolve? in our specific case. Evolutionary design is something you do for your own code. And as we were saying earlier, evolutionary design isn't a good fit for published APIs, uh, for, for software that you want people to consume the API. You shouldn't be evolving published APIs because it's so painful for the people who have to use them. But as people put facades on, isn't that potentially a reaction to people trying to evolve their own design and, and butting up against the ways that public APIs force you to and saying, you know, if this is going to work a lot better if we were able to, you know, glue it together this way. So we're going to start putting facades around and wrappers around public APIs. Well, I think putting a facade around a public API is a really good way of controlling that API. Um, Whenever you're dealing with other people's code, with third-party code, you have to assume it's going to change out from under you at some point. And this is actually part of what incremental design is about and simple design is about. You want to create your code such that assume anything that you depend on is going to change. And when that happens, how hard is it going to be to change your own code? So any library I use, I'll wrap in an API, I'll wrap in a facade or a wrapper so that I can change that library out or I can react to changes in that without having to change the rest of my code. That's just good design. 
So yeah, I think putting things like facades around Redux. Now I don't use Redux myself. I have used React, but I, I didn't use Redux. And part of the reason is that I look at Redux and I see a system that is designed to make changes hard. And since I use evolutionary design, I'm constantly changing my code. That it, When I ask that question, when, not if, I need to change this decision about using Redux, how hard is it going to be? The answer is, well, it has its tendrils into everything I do. So I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to use a piece of software that threads its tendrils throughout my entire code base. Because if I do that, when that thing changes out from under me, I've got a big problem. I've got a big well, rewrite effort. would you say the same thing then about React? I mean... Uh, so I, for my screencast, which is Let's Code JavaScript, I went through and I built the same application in Angular, React, and Ember. Uh, and this was a little stock market application, well, a little retirement planning demo app. You would put in how much money you have now, the rate of return you expect to get from the stock market, the amount of taxes, uh, the amount of money you're going to be pulling out. It would calculate taxes and so forth. I did this all in real time on the client. And I built this in Angular, React, and Ember. And all of them had this problem that they... You know, if you wanted to change them, you'd have to, it could have its, its, its tendrils threaded throughout all you do. React was the best of the three. React on its own, not React plus Redux, just React on its own. It was trying most to be just a library. Now, it's really hard to have a front-end framework that's just a library, so mm. I, can, I can forgive them somewhat. But it was trying really hard to be just a library, and it was really easy for me to write all my business logic standalone. I wrote it in a different set of modules that had no dependency on any of the React libraries and was able to just do that. And that's what I did instead of using Redux is I wrote my own business logic with its own update handlers and I just called back into React saying, I've updated, now you update. Angular, that was harder. Angular wanted to have a really, Angular 1 this was, it wanted to have the tight two-way binding and it wanted to own my business model with its services architecture. I was able to build my own business logic outside of Angular, but it was a lot harder. Ember had the same problem. Ember wants to own the world. It's got a very Ruby on Rails mindset and it wants to, you know, have its paved cow paths, which you will drive down <laughs> or regret. Yeah. I think for uh I think for a lot of people that are senior, James, you certainly strike me as a senior engineer or 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 principal or architect. I think for a lot of people who are are senior or lower, um, there's a lot of benefits that come from frameworks. Besides the benefits we're talking about, like memory leaks is probably the biggest one. I think that 85% of engineers can't spot most memory leaks that we create. I mean, it's, it's memory leaks and, and frameworks, if frameworks take those into consideration for us and, and they make upgrading easier versus if we build our own framework, we have to upgrade it manually, which I think is harder. And so like if I, if I put a collection of libraries together, like James said, some of us are able to do that, but I think for bigger projects, certainly, if you just want to upgrade one of your libraries, that can be a massive undertaking for someone who's never done that versus if you are using a framework that does these things for you, the upgrade of the framework should kind of take care of most of that stuff for you. So I, for a majority of engineers, I still find massive benefits outside of the discussion of designing patterns. I find massive benefits still for using frameworks for the, I don't know, the 75% of us. I, I would say. almost counterpoint that. I would definitely consider myself to be a senior and I find tons of value and I would much prefer myself a framework, right? 
I don't know if it's necessarily desire or confidence or whatever, but I don't feel like I could do a better job. I would rather take an existing framework and structure that somebody else has put in and be able to trust the pretty hard uh, amount of vetting that the community would give that thing. Not necessarily the designers per se, because as James has pointed out, we don't, you don't necessarily know the designers themselves. It might be the best engineers at whatever company produced it, or it might just be people with a lot of time on their hand and some opinions. But there is a fair amount of vetting that comes on. But for me, like I find that to be uh, a lot more freeing to let a lot of people make a decisions, even if they're decisions I wouldn't necessarily make myself. But I still find that I have a, a fair amount of opportunity to evolve my code and my design within the structure of even the more opinionated frameworks myself. Yeah. But James, I was, I'm interested in your experience building these three apps. Obviously, you talk about React being the easiest them, of them, and it seems like you're implying also that you would favor that. But of even the other two, did you find that your ability to you know, engage in an evolutionary design was hampered beyond the level where you would even call it evolutionary design? Or is it more about the level that you would prefer to be able to uh, make those modifications? Well, so the trick with evolutionary design is you've got to be able to evolve your code. You've got to be able to evolve your design. And the more you hand your design decisions off to a framework, the harder that is. So my criteria for, for good design is how easy it is to maintain your design. How easy is it to modify your design in the future? A lot of frameworks, a lot of code, a lot of the community, being somewhat junior, Bob Martin makes the point that the the number of programmers doubles every five years, which means that the majority of programmers have less than five years of experience. And it's also really hard to teach design in school. So I think the majority of, of programmers are kind of like what you were saying, Joe. It it's feels safer to hand off the design decisions to a framework to make those design decisions for you. The, the trick is, is there's this false dichotomy that people make. They say the choice is between writing your own framework or using somebody else's framework. And you kind of did the same thing, Frosty. But that's not actually what it is. Because remember, we're doing simple design here. If somebody is building a framework, they have to handle everybody's problems. You writing your own design means you only have to handle your problems. And it turns out that's really easy. It's really easy to solve just the problems that you have today. You don't have to solve everybody's problems. You don't have to solve any future problems. You don't have to make yourself a framework that is going to handle anything. You just have to solve the problems that you have right now. Now, some frameworks will make that really difficult. Ember and Angular, because I have a lot of experience, I was able to pull my code out of the clutches of the framework, but it didn't make it easy. It was not going down the, the paved path that they wanted me to follow. Whereas React, I could. Now, because again, people don't want to do that. They want to, don't want to come up with their own design decisions. People use stuff like Redux that makes those design decisions for them. I think though that people should try designing their own code more. It's not as hard as it looks. You will make mistakes. But evolutionary design says that you don't have to say sorry for your mistakes, you just fix them. If you keep your design simple and you're constantly looking at how you can improve the design and you're working with the other people on your team rather than in a vacuum, taking advantage of all the experience and wisdom on that team, you can come up with simpler, easier ideas, more changeable ideas than you would get with a framework. There is a downside though. And that is that if you're doing something that the framework does for you, the framework will be faster. But as soon as you get to the point where you're going outside of what the framework does for you, not using a framework will be faster. I do want to challenge your thought, and then we probably do need to wrap up soon. 
I just want to no, know. No, it's just getting interesting. <laughs> <laughs> we can have you back for round three, but I wanted to challenge that just by saying, like, I, I see the points that you're making. I think there's always a trade-off, and the only problem with that is it sounds like you're taking into account the developers at the organization at that time, and there are massive benefits in using a framework when people – you have new people joining, people are leaving because if you have like, you know, a couple developers who are involved in creating, you know, the system from scratch and then people down the line have to come and maintain that, what was in those initial developers' heads is long gone and, you know, it can be a hassle for people to maintain. So I don't know, it's always a trade-off. So I just wanted to make that point, but does anybody else have any other kind of short thoughts before we start wrapping up? I do have a couple quick thoughts about that. I think there is a, for me, it's quicker in a small project to use a framework because so much is already set up. In a longer project, I'm probably going to be on a bigger team, in which case the benefits of uniformity. We had Tom, didn't we have Tom Dale on this podcast a while ago talking about the state of Ember and he made this like beautiful case for why Ember matters so much for the fact that the uniformity is so high, developers can easily switch from project to project around at, a, at an organization, which to, really spoke to me. So in a big, long-lived project, the likelihood it's the, the same core team is going to stick around seems to be pretty low. So I, I like to challenge some thoughts, but I think that James uh, is well-spoken enough that my poor attempts at challenging his thoughts still don't validate, invalidate by any <laughs> point, which is being smart and knowing what you're doing is very valuable, but I still like frameworks. So no joke. I almost word belled this whole thing for the last 10 minutes, <laughs> but I didn't, but I almost went word bell on this, but uh, I respect the difference in opinions. And so I want to hear what AJ has to say about this. About uh, I'm sorry. Did I cut you off frosty? It seemed like you were. No, I was done. I just wanted to say that last point. Cause AJ of, of all of this, Amy, Aaron and I are definitely framework people, right? So we're obviously sitting over here on this one side of the fence when it comes to this particular discussion about frameworks versus non-frameworks, right? We are framework people, but AJ is very much not a framework person. So I'd like to hear what he has to say. Ask a more specific question in relation to the topic at hand, because no, I'm not really into frameworks, but Give me, give me a scope for that. Do you find that the, op, op, the availability to evolve your code to the design that you want is so severely hampered by frameworks that it, you might as well, that you, it really can't be done? That's, maybe that's a question that's valid and along one of the questions that James has kind of said. So I would say I do a lot of weird things. I am very much an innovator and I try to find work with other people that are doing strange and weird things. And so my experience with frameworks has been when I am being introduced into a new concept or pattern or area of expertise or education, I find frameworks to be valuable to learn how other people are doing things, what the, the common intelligence has come up with and arrived at. But once I understand for myself then I like to go bare bones and just write what I need. For example, I'm becoming paranoid because of the security vulnerabilities that have happened with NPM and you know malware getting injected onto lots of people's computers and stuff. So I, I'm probably more paranoid than I need to be, but things like request.js and express.js where 
there's between dozens and hundreds of dependencies and who knows like what little tiny thing that no one even cares about is still in there and someone's just emailing npm and like hey i want to take over this package or you know whatever that just it scares me and i feel i feel good when i can understand something well enough i and i love reverse engineering too like i enjoy it like like solving a crossword puzzle like it's not something that i find tedious or annoying like oh i have to figure this out it's something i really love and enjoy so i wrote the most valuable parts of Express that I need to use on a regular basis, not all the modules, not all of the different parsers and all that, but just like the way Express basically handles a, a next chain. Like I wrote that in 78 lines of code and I don't feel like I need all, I don't, I don't actually feel like Express is limiting at all. I think Express is great. There's only a couple of bugs I've found with it where I found it to be limiting, but I just enjoy uh, learning for myself and then and then repeating what I've learned to confirm my understanding. And once I'm at that point, I have this nice little small thing that either I can turn into a library or I can just copy and paste in my next project. And I'm very much a not invented here syndrome type person. I don't think it's a good thing for everyone. I think the benefits you bring up of team and common understanding and all that are excellent benefits. Um, and I don't I don't argue against them. But for me personally. I just like to go bare metal a lot of the time. James, do you consider yourself a non-invented hero person? No, not really. But I would say that I think the cost of changing code that other people wrote is higher than the cost of changing code that I wrote myself. So if it's 78 lines of code, I'm going to write it myself. So I probably, anything that's simple, anything that's glue code, I'm just going to do myself because that's the kind of stuff that changes all the time. If it's something that's complicated, something that's like a really hard CS problem, I'm not going to do that myself. I'm going to download a library. But those sorts of things you can usually find libraries. One thing I do want to say, though, before we wrap up, is we got off onto the question of frameworks, but frameworks are not in conflict with the idea of doing evolutionary design. I don't want people to get the impression, you, you mentioned, Joe, oh, it's evolutionary design or frameworks. That is absolutely not true. Right. You yeah, can that would be a Design in a situation where frameworks. It's just that if you're using a framework, it's going to make some design decisions decisions for you that you cannot change, and that's something to be aware of. Just like when you choose a library, it's going to do things for you that you can't change. It's just it's easier to wrap a library and then swap the library out than it is to wrap a framework and swap the framework out. Yeah. Well, I think if anything, we can at least all agree that if you're not doing TDD, we don't like you. Yeah, that's why I hate myself. <laughs> I wake up every morning crying. I know the loathing inside of me. Uh, this episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io.
On that note, should I push us into picks? You should. You should push us into picks. Okay. Joe, you want to go first? No, let Aaron go first. <laughs> okay, Aaron. Uh, I've got two picks. The, uh, the first pick is Easter. It's not the holiday. It's the candy holiday. I like the nerd wrapped jelly beans. And I liked the, Cad- the Cadbury eggs with the crunchy shell. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yep, it's good stuff. It's basically an M&M, but better. Okay. That's, <laughs> I'm picking the Easter candy season, not Easter itself. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's part of the season, right? Yeah. All right. Cadbury caramel eggs. Okay. Not the cream, Second. caramel. Second, this pick is a little bit longer. I'm going to ask everyone to bear with me, please, please. Um, so Joe and I, we played D&D, and we just had one of the best moments in the history of D&D last night. <laughs> I've created a real clueless character. Uh, honestly, it sounds like someone that Amy might want to go out with. Uh, this dude is oh, like... Oh, no. <laughs> Can they deadlift and help with merge conflict? Oh, this guy is so strong. But oh, yes, then. He's, he's a druid. This character, he... Uh, when everyone first met him months ago, he, he explained to everyone that he delivers letters from one person to another, to which they responded, oh, you're a mailman, which he responded, no, 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 and explained all over again what he did, to which they said, that sounds like a mailman, and, and he, got, he got really mad. So pretty quickly, everyone realized we can't call him a mailman, even though he's a mailman. And so throughout the last months, this dude... He's explained to everybody because he's real close. He explains to everybody that he delivers letters from one person to another. And he's been explaining this for months to everybody that they meet. Well, last night we walk into a room and we're completely stuck. There's no way out. People have died. And there's this riddle on the wall that says, a secret that's never been told will open Denethor's mouth. It's not Denethor. That's from Lord of the Rings. But I can't remember the dude's name. It's some dwarf king. And so I realized we have to, someone's going to have to tell a secret that we've never told anyone before. So I tell everyone, my character tells everyone to leave the room. And then into the darkness, like alone in the room, he just stares off and begins to cry. And he begins to sob and admits, I'm just a male man. And he falls to the ground in the field position and starts like slobber crying, like the ugliest crying possible, right? Uh, and everybody in the room is just dying with laughter. Like we're dude, all it, dying with laughter. You couldn't, if you had told me to plan a moment like this on purpose, I couldn't have planned it intentionally any better. We were all passed out laughing and I've been laughing all day about it. Cause the dude, Oh my gosh. It was just so funny. I, I'm months sure it's not very and months funny. for the perfect payoff months yeah. and months for this months amazing un, unscripted payoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Joe didn't even see it coming. Admit it, Joe. I, I caught you off guard. And so, yeah, it was... Did not was, see it coming. I had no so idea. Funny. Like, Aaron's yeah. saying he's going to... I didn't know it was coming either. All of a sudden, they're like, you got to tell the secret. I was like, your character right, have? here comes the secret. <laughs> and everyone's like, dude, what kind of secret does this idiot have? And anyway, so I'm just going to drop D&D fun moments, jokes that take months to tell. Like, that kind of a, that kind of a concept is my pick. Good, good. That's it. AJ? All right, I've got some of the best ones for you. We got some stuff that's super nerdy and even a little bit that's pop culture. So first of all, if you have not seen Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, just don't get your hopes too high, but go see it because it's the best Spider-Man movie I've ever seen and one of the best movies I've ever seen. But don't, don't think that it's going to be, like it's not phantasmagorical or anything. It's just, you got to have that love-hate relationship with 
the stupid choices of the other movies where like they throw in 16 bad guys and then you completely lost in the plot or like really awkward moments between the, the actor and actress where like the chemistry is just weird, you know, just all that, that love hate relationship that you have with Spider-Man through the past decade of movies. And then, you know, maybe if you've got a little bit of love for some other nerddoms, there's just things in this one that you'll appreciate. And if you don't, I think you'll still like it anyway. But so you're it, saying in the history of Spider-Man's, it's the highest point on a map on a chart with a lot of really low points is what you're saying. Um, what I'm saying is more than that, but I don't, I don't want to get your hopes up because okay. I think if you go in with even expectations, you could have your expectations it. surpassed. If you go in thinking this is the greatest movie since Jurassic Park, well, I think that would be true, but you, you might be setting the bar a little too high or, you know, where you're going to be judging the movie at. <laughs> Jurassic Park. I love it, dude. You should have said something like Care Bears. That would have been even better. But yeah, I get it. I get what you're saying. No, it, that's, that's a pick for another time. But Jurassic Park is the best made movie of all time. And the key point, without any provocation, the lead actress has a role and doesn't wear heels. And that's not like, that, that's another pick for another time. But that's just- What's happening right now? That's one symptom of how great Jurassic Park is. But <laughs> so another two things I got for you. I'll, I'll go with the, the slightly less nerdy one first. Pre-gap tracks. So if you've got CDs and you've got more than, say, 15 of them, if you put them in an old school CD player and when the CD starts to spin, you hold down the backwards button you are likely to find in some of your collection a CD that actually has a hidden track in what's called the pre-gap. So you go backwards to negative two minutes and 30 seconds and the song starts there. And when you're ripping MP3s and you're buying on Amazon or whatever, you can't get these tracks. I don't know of any software that does it. I'm sure it's out there, but it's not like iTunes is not going to rip these tracks for you. And I'm providing a link to a list of albums with pre-gap tracks. You'll find tons of popular artists on that list, probably something in your shelf. And I challenge you to go dust off your CD player, put one of the CDs in there and hold down that back button and listen to what the artist had waiting for those that were diligent. And then my last pick is quick chip removal alloy. If you ever need to desolder something, like you got to fix uh, maybe a, you know USB ports on a, on your MacBook or something else that well, on the MacBook they don't go janky, but on some other computer they've gone janky, or like power adapters that have gone janky, headphone jacks that have gone janky, or HDMI ports that have gone janky, like on your PlayStation Four, for example, you get some of this quick chip removal alloy, you solder it on. And it mixes in with the other solder and it brings the melting temperature down to pretty much like hot summer day temperature. And you can lift the part right off and replace it with the one that you need that's fixed. And it's, it's mind-blowing how easy you can repair electronics that would otherwise be impossible if you've got that stuff. So big shout out to all the knockoff Chinese manufacturers that make it so I can pay $20 less and get pretty much the same quality of stuff to solve my problems. <laughs> okay, Joe. All right, uh, I just got one pick for you. Spent the weekend playing board games. Played one board game that I think is universally 
fun. This is a, a cooperative board game where it's a, like a detective storyboard game, right? So you're investigating a crime as a group. You can play it by yourself. You can play it in a group. You can play it in a fr- relatively large group, maybe like six to or seven people. So it requires an app, but it's just, it's so cool. You're investigating some kind of a crime, right? And when the, every card that's in the game has like a QR code. So if you meet a new suspect, you can scan their QR code and then the app knows that you're talking to that person. Then you can scan other QR codes for items or other people. And it's like, you're questioning that person about those things. And it's just really well done, really fun, very tight, good gameplay, good graphics, good design. The art is really nice, and it's a very engaging game. So it's called Chronicles in Crime or Chronicles of Crime uh, board game. Definitely check that one out. That's my pick. Cool. I'll go. Let's see. The first one is just something fun. It's uh, puns.dev. I feel like I've heard of a lot of these before, but I don't know. If you want to pass something around to make you laugh a little bit, it's pretty good. And then the other thing I'm going to pick is bouldering. So I've done rock climbing before, but I hadn't tried bouldering. And when I was at the NPM All Hands a couple of weeks ago, a few of the developers were into bouldering and I gave it a shot and it was pretty fun and awesome. So I'm going to pick that and we can go on to James before I lose my voice. All right. Uh, I got a second, the uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse pick. Uh, as long as you go in without your expectations too high, right, AJ, then I think you'll enjoy it. But my other pick is is uh, Pandemic Legacy. It's a board game. It's been out for a while now. But my wife and I just recently played this. It is a, it's a legacy board game, which means that as you play the game, you modify the board and you rip up cards and you destroy pieces. So you can only play it once. And at first I thought, well, this seems like a waste, right? But I read an interview with one of the designers. He said, no, the point isn't that you only can play the game 12 to 24 times, which is how many times you play it as it changes throughout the course of the series. The idea is that you will play it at least 12 times. And it's true. My wife and I played this Pandemic Legacy board game more than we played almost any other board game that we own. And we own a lot. It's also just really well done. It is a fantastic game. Uh, Highly recommended. Uh, Pandemic Legacy. Okay. I guess that is it. And we will see everybody next week. Bye. Thanks. Thanks for coming, James. Thanks, everyone. It was excellent to have you again. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Agreed. Thanks. Mm -hmm. See you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.